Man, I want to just begin first of all by saying thank you so much for all of you who prayed for me during the two weeks that I was away. Um, it was a profitable time. My only regret was that I missed uh, Sarah Van Etwell's uh, celebration of life service because I was also away when Hank uh, passed away as well. And so, But I was at least able to catch it on live stream. Uh, thank you for your prayers and I trust my experiences over the last little while will leak their way out through many sermons and many informal conversations as well. As you've already heard, today we're beginning a new series for six weeks on the parables of Jesus. And anytime we start a new series, it's always good to ask two questions. Why this series and why at this particular time? As Candace already mentioned to us, last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, which signals the beginning of this uh, six-week time where the church has historically set apart in order to think deeply and long about the suffering of Jesus and also use that as an opportunity to examine our own hearts and put ourselves in a proper frame of mind in which to enter the joyful celebration of uh, Passion Week and uh, Good Friday and Easter that is coming. And there's a particular text of Scripture, a section of, of the Scriptures, New Testament, that is particularly helpful for us. It's ten chapters in Luke's Gospel that cover from chapter 9, verse 51, to chapter 19, verse 44. It is Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem, starting from Galilee in the north, passing through Samaria in the middle, to Jerusalem in the Judea and Jerusalem in the south. That section begins with this verse. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this was his final journey towards Jerusalem. That's why it's a very appropriate text for us. Jesus is traveling along with his disciples and another motley, unspecified crew, uh, group of people that have joined together with him on this journey. It's a dangerous journey, about 60 to 70 miles, taking about 3 to 5 days either on foot or on donkey. And Jesus is using this time to prepare the disciples for what lies ahead for him and for them as a result of that. And so it becomes a very appropriate section to meditate on. And while some of you may be using that 40-day thing, others of you who want to meditate just on Scripture, if you take this section from 951 to 1944, just reading 12 verses a day, it will bring you to Palm Sunday, the day Jesus arrives on Palm Sunday. And so if you want, that's another way you can go through. Print out 12 verses each day and just meditate on them during the day. And that will provide a larger context for these messages on the parables. Now, why the parables? It so happens that in this time period, Jesus tells many parables. Ten of them are completely unique to Luke. And therefore, they seem to have been chosen for this particular journey. And we have chosen six of those parables that we're going to use as part of this series to connect with the larger context of your, of your readings and your meditations during Lent to prepare us. Now, the very first parable we're going to look at is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, that is a phrase that has actually worked itself into the English language. Uh, while I was away, I happened to read on the internet one day that on uh, Monday, February the 24th, a 39-year-old woman in Manhattan gave birth to her third child on the sidewalk. Her, she so suddenly went into labor and missed a taxi and couldn't get to the hospital, and so delivered a baby on the sidewalk. There were lots of kind onlookers that surrounded her, and one particular person took off her coat and gave it to the lady, took off her sweater, even though it was quite cold in New York, and gave it to the baby. Later on, they tracked her woman down, found her name, and... She named the child after that lady. And, but the headline said, Woman names child after Good Samaritan. You see, the, the, the phrase has worked itself into a popular language. And everybody knows what it means. It means to help people who suddenly find themselves in need. So you say, well, how can we devote a whole sermon to that? You already told us what the sermon is all about, right? What are you going to say for the next 35 minutes? Well, this is where you need to know what a parable is. <laughs> 
It actually comes from two Greek words, para which means alongside, like parallel, and bole which means to throw. So a parable is actually something that has been thrown alongside something else. So if you're walking along the street and something comes rolling next to you, what do you do? You stop. You ask yourself, what is this thing? What is it doing here? That's exactly the function of a parable. It is something that Jesus throws alongside something else. It is intended to stop us, make us ask questions, and it actually immediately involves us in what is going on, and perhaps pay attention to things that are going on that we might have otherwise missed. That part of the story, very few people know, and even we tend to miss it most often. So my question for us this morning, before we look at the parable is, what was the main thing that was happening alongside which Jesus threw this parable of the Good Samaritan? And that will help us understand the text better for us. Well, this story begins in chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, either to teach or they're just taking a rest from, from, a, from a difficult journey. And the story begins this way. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a lawyer there doesn't mean our kind of lawyers. It is a, a person who's an expert in biblical law, otherwise translated as a scribe. These were people who studied the Bible, the Old Testament, and de- debated it with each other, and prescribed rules and regulations for the people. And this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, was a very common question that these scribes debated. We are told here that he chose this opportunity to ask Jesus this question to test him. Now, in what way was he testing Jesus? We're not told that. Uh, lot, by the way, you'll find something else in these parables. There are many things you would like to know that are not answered in the parables. Because the point is to get you involved in the story. By asking questions like that and by thinking a little bit more deeply. Perhaps it is likely that he thought this was a good opportunity for him. Because the, Jesus wasn't exactly popular with this subsection of, the, of his audience, uh, perhaps this was a good opportunity for him to upstage Jesus in a debate, and the scribes were very good at debate, and to elevate himself perhaps, we don't know. Well, Jesus comes back with another question, as he so often did. He had far more questions than he ever gave answers. And so he said, well, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The fact of the matter is, this man knew the answer to the question. He knew Jesus knew the answer to the question, but he was being made to answer it. And so he said, and of course he had to answer because most likely from his dress people would have known that this guy was a scribe. And of course he had to know the answer to a basic question like that. So Jesus put him on the spot and he had to answer and he said this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This is a well-known classical summary of the whole law. Jesus himself had used these words. So having got the lawyer to answer his own question with his own mouth, Jesus finishes this part of the dialogue by just simply saying to him, well, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So you want to know what eternal life is all about and how you can get it? You just gave me the answer yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. Just now go and do it. The scribes don't like to be told what to do, right? They like debates. Now, what is this guy going to do? (laughs) He's kind of been put on the spot a little bit. So he comes back with another question. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, this time we are told specifically why he asked this question. He wanted to justify himself. Now you and I know from human experience that we want to justify ourselves when somebody has said something that either exposed us or criticized us or shown us up in a less than desirable light. 
So maybe your spouse asks you all of a sudden, Hey, how come last night after all the dinner guests went away, you didn't stay up and help me wash all the dishes, but went downstairs to watch the end of the hockey game? All of a sudden you want to justify yourself, right? (laughs) Because you want to at least show that you're not as bad as that question implies, right? So evidently this guy was on the spot. Well, the reason he was on the spot was he had tried to test Jesus. Instead, he found himself being tested. (laughs) He was forced to answer the question that he asked himself and he was being told to obey his own answers. That puts you in a very discomforting position. So he said, I've got to get the attention off me and back on Jesus. So he comes back with this question. Who's my neighbor? Well, okay, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Mind you, Jesus also said, love God. He could have said, who's God? Well, that would have been a pointless question, right? <laughs> because to talk, ask Jesus and ascribe who God is in a Jewish context was a meaningless question. Everybody knew who God was. But the neighbor, that had plenty of potential to get into arguments and debates. You know? I mean, who's my neighbor? Everybody? I can't love everybody. Huh? Maybe it's just Israel. Maybe it's just the subset in Israel that are obedient to God. That's a little bit more manageable. and Maybe I can get inherit eternal life. But mostly he wanted to take the spotlight off himself and chose a subject that he thought, oh, we could debate this for a long, long time. You know, and everybody would forget about me and my obedience to my own commandments or to God's commandments. Well, these kind of tactics, hiding behind debates, was all, these, ex- these people were experts at that kind of stuff. What does Jesus say? That's when he throws the parable. The parable. That's the setting for the parable. And so he begins. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This was a 17 mile journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a 3,500 foot drop in elevation. It was a twisting and turning road through badlands and fremy wilderness, pockmarked with all kinds of caves in which robbers could hide themselves. And these robbers would often waylay the people that were traveling that route down to Jerusalem. And so one of these guys ended up half dead. Now in the story, Jesus doesn't identify the ethnicity of this man, but because he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho way down in the south, an automatic assumption of his audience would have been that this was a Jewish man who was probably lying there. Okay, then he says this, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, we're not told in this story the motives for these people as to why they stopped. But it invites some speculation, as parables do. Well, many of the priests lived in Jericho while they did their ministry and their work in Jerusalem. So maybe he was coming back after a stint of work and he felt he'd already done God's work. He couldn't be expected to do more. Maybe he needed a break at this time. Or what is quite likely, if a man was half dead, he was motionless. If he was dead and the priest touched him, he would be ceremonially defiled. For 24 hours. With all kinds of nuisance implications of that. At least one scholar suggested that he may have to go all the way back to Jerusalem to get ceremonially cleansed. Last thing he wanted to do. Or perhaps he was afraid that if he lingered, he might get attacked by the same people. Or maybe, because a Levite was coming behind him and Levites were given to help the priest, maybe he thought, well, he can do it. He's supposed to help me in all these things. Anyway, who knows what was going on in his mind. These are four possible options and off he went. Well, the Levite comes right behind him and said, okay, my, my religious superior didn't bother, stop, so I guess that's my authorization, you know. If the pastor doesn't do it, why should I, you know. So he moved along. Now, as I said, we're not too sure, but we can't be too hard on these guys, right? What would you do at 11 o'clock in downtown Toronto if you found somebody on, on the highway? You'd probably suspect with good cause this might be a setup to get you as well. 
So we can't be too hard on these people in a setting like that. But the actual point of the whole matter is that these two people were not introduced into the story so that we could work, she could make applications to Levites and priests. You see, in a Semitic story, there were sequences that were taken for granted. So if a Semitic audience like Jesus' audience was listening to a story where the first character was a priest and the second character was a Levite, they knew who was coming next. The third character would be a Jewish layman. Priests, Levites and lay people was a way of summing up the people of God. It's sort of like if I were telling you a story and the first person was a pastoral staff member and the second person was an elder, you might reasonably expect the third person to be a lay person, right? That kind of sums up this group. So, if you put yourself in that audience, having listened to the priest not doing his work and the Levite, Everybody was waiting for the next character to show up. And most likely they were expecting Jesus to say, and along came a Jewish layman who stopped and helped this person. I mean, what a slap that would be in the face of the religious establishment. See, the people were not very impressed with the clergy in those days. And so a story in which a layman upstaged a, a priest and a Levite would be a welcome slap in the face of those people. That's why you remember the common people always heard Jesus gladly, especially when he put the leadership to difficulties. Now you can understand the incredible shock value of the statement. Because the third person in the story was not a Jew at all. This is what Jesus said. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, already the shock waves would have been rippling through the group. But a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was, and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, that's immediate first aid, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, that's transportation, took care of him, continued care. And then the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. That's provision for ongoing care. From instant care, immediate aid, all the way to ongoing care, what a Levite didn't do, what a priest didn't do, a hated Samaritan did. And in order to understand the shock value of this, you need to understand the history of the Jewish and the Samaritans relationship. See, after David's son Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel made up of the twelve tribes split up into two. The tribes of Benjamin and Judah formed the southern kingdom of Judah, and the remaining ten tribes formed the northern kingdom that was called Israel. Well, in 722 BC, about 700 years or so before the story that Jesus told, the Assyrian king had come and invaded Samaria and and those ten northern tribes were taken into exile. And a few of the poor people were left behind. And as the Assyrian king often did, he would resettle his conquered territories by people from other nations that he had conquered. And so a motley crew of people came and lived in that area, and they intermarried with the Jews that were left behind, and the the race, the mixed ethnic race that descended from them were called the Samaritans. And they were, of course, viewed by the Jews as being unfaithful to the covenant because they married foreigners. Now, 200 years later, when the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive in Babylon, they remained pure as far as this was concerned. And so they considered themselves to be pure to the covenant, whereas the Samaritans were not. Not only that, when the southern kingdom of Judah came back after exile, at least some of them came back after exile, and they started rebuilding the temple, the Samaritans came and said, can we help you? And they said, no, we don't need any help from you. You guys are all half-breeds. And so the Samaritans built a temple of their own near Mount Gerizim in the north. And they also had their own version of the Pentateuch. It was called the Samaritan Pentateuch. Their own scriptures, their own temple, you can see. A lot of uh, bad blood between these two groups for 700 years. 
In fact, Josephus tells us that on one occasion, a group of Galileans going on the way to Jerusalem for a festival were ambushed and murdered by the Samaritans, in return for which uh, Jewish guerrillas came and attacked several of their villages. In fact, one of the common Jewish prayers was, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans on the day of resurrection. It was even possible for a Gentile to become a Jewish proselyte, but not a Samaritan. And it was further reinforced that at the beginning of this travel narrative, Jesus sent people ahead of him, his disciples, to find places for them to stay in Samaria. And yet their hospitality was closed to them. They were rejected. So with this background, imagine the shock value of this story. A priest walked by this man, a Levite walked by this man, and your hated Samaritan was the one who did what you're supposed to do to inherit eternal life. And all of that to ask this next question. Which of these three, he's still talking to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among? So the parable had got their attention. Everybody was involved at this point. Nobody was not listening. What is this going on here? What in the world is Jesus saying? So he asked the lawyer the question. Don't forget the larger context. Remember, this lawyer was trying to get attention off him onto Jesus. And he was looking forward to a long debate on who our neighbors really were. Instead, Jesus completely puts him on the spot and says, Who's the neighbor in this story? The guy has, there's only one possible answer, right? And once again, he's hooked. He's forced by Jesus to answer his own question in a way he doesn't want to answer. And so he says, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He had to give a long five words where one word would have been enough. He couldn't say Samaritan. That hated man. And so Jesus said, okay, go do what, what he did. Earlier he said, you obey your own law. Now he said, go do what he did. Jesus had brilliantly changed the subject matter of the discussion from defining a neighbor that was capable of endless debate to simply being a neighbor which required no debate at all to understand. There's also something else about this text that I haven't usually seen mentioned, but which actually became the main point. As I entered this story, this is the point that grabbed me. See, the first thing that Jesus made the lawyer say out of his own mouth was that part of inheriting eternal life is loving your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. Then, he made Je- then Jesus made this guy say out of his own mouth, The Samaritan was the neighbor. Put those two things together and what else do you get? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor and I've just defined the Samaritan as my neighbor, that's Jesus getting me to say, love the Samaritan. This story is not just about being like the Samaritan, helping other people, which of course is important. It also has this added barb inside of it, which is love the Samaritan. So what did the lawyer do? (laughs) doesn't say. Four of the six parables we're going to look at are left open-ended. We don't know what the main character did. Did he go away infuriated that Jesus had humiliated him? That instead of putting him to the test, he got put to the test? That his ethnic hatred was exposed? Did he go away scheming on when and how he was going to get back at Jesus with another debate when he will really get his own back? He may have. I suspect that's probably what happened. Or did he go away chastised in his spirit 
The gap between his theoretical confession of the law and his practical hatred of the Samaritan uh, exposed. Maybe repentant. We don't know. We don't know what the lawyer did. You see, the only person we will know about is ourselves. As Warren Wearsby said in his little commentary on these parables, meet yourself in the parables. It's time to meet ourselves in the parable now. So that's what the rest of the message is about as we prepare for communion. The first connection point for me was our attitude towards 21st century Samaritans. By his brilliant questioning, Jesus had managed to get this lawyer to see the hatred within his own heart for a Samaritan. But it was also for the disciples. Because at the beginning of this journey, when the Samaritans refused hospitality, you know what James and John did? James and John were called the sons of thunder. Probably because they were men with a temper. And they said, Jesus, shall we call on fire from heaven upon these people? Well, by the way, they had good biblical precedent. For it was in Samaria hundreds of years ago when a delegation from a wicked king of Samaria were sentenced by fire by God before the prophet Elijah. So they had good prophetic authorization for this. And Jesus rebuked them for it. The disciples also were being told, while he was talking to the lawyer, the disciples also were you don't call judgment down on the Samaritans, you love them. So who are the Samaritans in our life? I am going to be pretty brutally honest here. Because this is how I interacted with it. And I would be compromising my integrity if I didn't say what I was going to say now. It might make some of us uncomfortable, but that may have been the whole point anyway. What would a modern day parable look like? Might it go something like this? Not the road to Jericho, but an apartment building. It's late at night. And all of a sudden from one of the apartments there's a huge big ruckus and a cry for help. Says Jesus. And on one side there was the pastor of a church. He heard the sound but he was busy preparing his sermon for Sunday and so he decided to do nothing about it. On the other side of that apartment was an elder. He also heard the sound but he was getting ready for a board meeting for the next week and so he didn't want to go across. But across the hall there lived... What would Jesus put in the blank there? Members of a hated immigrant community that are taking up our jobs and cluttering up Tim Hortons? Or what actually God brought to my mind, what if he said across the hall lived a gay couple that were the first ones to run and help? If you're beginning to feel uncomfortable right now, you now have a feeling how the disciples were feeling as Jesus was telling the story. Listen, this is not about watering down biblical convictions. This is not about a refusal to stand up for what we believe. But it is all about saying neighbors come in unexpected places. And how many of us have not seen, hopefully with deep horror and revulsion in our hearts, TV clips showing placards being carried by people who call themselves Christians, even pastors, calling down exactly the kind of judgment that James and John wanted to call down on the Samaritans. Burn in hell. And other epithets. What have we said in private conversations about gay people? Which we would not repeat in public. I had a couple of people after the sermon last night immediately confirm the, the reality of these things. 
I want to say something in a crowd this large. There might be a few, a few gay people here. If you are, I just want to say thank you for coming to worship. Amen. And secondly, I want to stand here and apologize on behalf of every Christian leader who has ever said derogatory things to you. Yes, our convictions about your lifestyles may be completely different than yours, and those two may never be harmonized. But that doesn't give any of us the right to treat you with any less dignity than you deserve as being people made in the image of God. And for the rest of you, that wasn't an issue. That wouldn't, it's not an issue. The question still remains, who are the Samaritans in your life that God is calling you to change your attitude towards? That's the first connection point. The second part of a meeting ourselves was this question. Loving our neighbor indeed not in theory. The, the, the lawyer was well, willing to love people in theory. He just didn't do it in practice. This is serious business. Because Jesus said to the lawyer, you want eternal life love. Living well, loving our neighbor is not just an option. According to Jesus, loving our neighbor is a lifestyle that is the only thing that makes for life. In fact, leads to eternal life. It's not about earning eternal life. It's a demonstration of the reality of the life that is within us. The other thing that struck me about this, and I'm indebted to uh, Lloyd John Ogilvy for drawing my attention to this, which I had missed in all my earlier readings of the parable. You notice when he said the priest comes in, he says, by chance, a priest walked by. That Greek word that is translated chance is the word for coincidence. But with God, there are no such things as coincidence. So that's the other point of connection, is that God will... Create situations so that by chance you will find yourself next to a neighbor in need. It's not necessarily about all kinds of planned attempts to love our neighbors, which is also important. But there will be chance encounters. <laughs> well, it happened to me this time when I was away. Hmm. I spent the first three days uh, spending time with Ken and Claire, who work in this huge mega city metropolis in a limited access nation. And I spent the first three days with him. And on the Tuesday morning, Claire was going to drop me off at Suresh and Cheryl's place, who also work in the same mega city. And Ken was heading off to another city there. And so, Monday night, Claire had invited a young couple who had just joined their team. And so they arrived for dinner around 7 o'clock on Monday evening with a precocious two-and-a-half-year-old who was, whose vocabulary is way above her age. And then the lady was pregnant, uh, six months pregnant with their second child. And it had already been a very difficult pregnancy. Well, about halfway into the evening, she began to experience severe back pain. And within half an hour, Claire was gone with the two of them, because they didn't speak enough Turkish at this point, were gone, and uh, leaving behind this girl with me and uh, Ken. <laughs> and as Ken several times said, they didn't ask me, they didn't ask me. <laughs> but young 11-year-old Joey came to our rescue. And he just looked after this little girl so beautifully, played with her. And, but it was now 8.30, 9, 9.30, and we just kept hearing, getting calls saying, um, we don't know yet, we're still waiting for the results. And now it was way past bedtime, so Claire said to Ken, you better put the child to sleep. So he tried to pick her up, and a huge scream just came right out, you know. And we had visions of who knows how many hours into the night we would be leaving with this stuff. Again, Joey came to the rescue. He took her upstairs, played with her, and he came back half an hour later and said, she's asleep. So wonderfully, Ken and I went to bed around 11 o'clock. He had a 6 o'clock flight, uh, 6 o'clock departure to the airport the next morning. Anyway, when I woke up the next morning, Ken and I were chatting and he, I discovered the rest of the story. It was almost 1 o'clock and they weren't coming back and Ken was just about getting ready to go to the hospital when, he got, when Claire came back, bringing their car back. 
And so later at 8 o'clock in the morning when I got my bags all packed to go to Suresh and Sharo's place, uh, so I was just chatting with Claire. She said, now you know what uh, being a team leader is like. <laughs> she was being an unexpected neighbor to someone in need. But more than that, I kind of innocently asked her, without even thinking about it, because she now had to take the child to the hospital and the people's car. I said, well, what about the, don't we need another car after that? She said, yeah. I said, how are we going to get the second car? She said, can you drive it, please? <laughs> and within 30 seconds, I had these scenarios flashing through my mind. Here I was driving in a mega city, traffic I'd never driven before there, never wanted to. Suresh explained to me later on that they don't stop at stop signs. In fact, one time when he stopped, the cop behind him honked the horn and said, get moving. <laughs> so I was going to have to drive in a place like this. We had two highway sections to take on, which means I had to follow, not lose sight of her. I, and the, by the way, the car seat was in the car with, with the kid, then she would be with me. So I'd be driving a two and a half year old that didn't know me at all. <laughs> I had visions of her crying, so I would miss Claire. And then I thought I'd be, on, I'd be pulled off to the side. And you imagine a policeman coming and saying, well, can I see your license, please? Huh? I'm driving a car that I don't own. I have a child that is, doesn't belong to me in the back seat. <laughs> I don't, speak the, I don't speak the language. I wouldn't know where to go. I wouldn't know how to go back. That was scary. All that happened in 30 seconds, and I said, yeah, okay, I'll come. <laughs> it was a total chance encounter. The kid behaved fine. I was able to follow, in spite of losing sight a couple of times, and it was wonderful to see the child reunited with her dad. And listen, I'm, I'm no great hero when it comes to loving neighbors, okay? But I'm just thankful that while I was meditating on this passage, God actually allowed me to experience this one dimension of it. By chance, I was called to be a neighbor to someone. Yes, there were all these realities were there, but there wasn't any way I could have said no to Claire's request. I just had to go and do it. So I'm just asking you today, as we come to the communion table, to join me in a fresh commitment to let a sovereign God, by chance, bring us into places and situations where we will be willing to be neighbors, even to the Samaritans. This observation by Lloyd John Ogilvy helped me. It's a beautiful prayer to prepare us for communion. So as the worship team comes back, as the elders make their way up here, and others who are serving, uh, let me just read this for you. He said this, he said, It takes more energy to calculate whom I will help than it does to just trust the Lord, to show the way, to place people in my path who need Him, and provide the wisdom and strength I need to help each person. There is a tremendous release which comes from the prayer. Lord, I belong to you. All that I have is a gift from you. I will pass through this way only once. Guide me to the people you have prepared for what I am to give in your name. That prayer releases the tension of reservation and makes life an adventure of being used. I want to read it again and when we come to the prayer part, will you pray it loudly with me? It takes more energy to calculate whom I will help, which is what the lawyer was trying to do, than it does to just trust the Lord to show the way, to place people in my path who need Him, and to provide the wisdom and strength I need to help each person. There is tremendous release which comes from this prayer. And will you pray this with me now? Lord, I belong to You. All that I have is a gift from You. I will pass through this way only once. Guide me to the people You have prepared for what I am to give in your name. That prayer releases the tension of reservation and makes life an adventure for being used. I only had a 15-minute taste of that adventure. <laughs>
and I'm glad I did. Father, I pray that it will just be the down payment of much more. And for someone like me, there's a lot of work that you need to do in my life to be a neighbor. I suspect there are many people like me here. So as we partake of these elements today, Jesus, we, we freely confess, we cannot love you and love the neighbor as us. So eternal life, we are in, it is in, not within our powers to do what needs to be done to receive eternal life. So we fall, we don't know what the lawyer did, but we run to you, Jesus. We fall flat on our faces before you. We lay a hold of you by your feet and say, Jesus, don't let me go. Work in me. Lay your hands upon me. Bless me and work in me what is well-pleasing in your sight. Equip me with everything good to do your will, Jesus, that I might be more obedient and you might receive the glory. In Jesus' name. In my readings during this time when I was away, um, of course this message was also, um, or this passage of scripture was uh, occupying my attention. And then in my regular readings I happened to be in Mark's gospel. And some of you remember the story of the blind man who had to be touched twice. And after he was touched once, Jesus asked him, what do you see? He said, I see people, but they look like trees to me walking around. And so Jesus touched him a second time. And, you know, the God connected those two in my heart very much. He's, for, for us to love the Samaritans, we've got to stop seeing them like trees walking around and like people. I know I need a second touch. I need many second touches from Jesus. So that's what I want to bless you, but I desperately need that same blessing. So once again, can you reach out your heart towards me as I reach it out to you? May the Lord Jesus Christ touch you and touch you again and again and again. That from the nearest neighbors to the furthest one, <laughs> your eyes will see that what they have not seen before. And those who are but trees walking around will become specific faces, names and individuals that you will love. And in loving, enter into a new adventure. Go in Jesus' name.